Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. My name is Alan, with me as always is Gareth. Hello. We're here for the latest installment of Two Men Talk About a Woman. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about a show written by a woman and try and not say anything inappropriate. Well, we're very zeitgeisty, aren't we? You know, the, uh, the changing face of British comedy commented upon by two middle-aged white men. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we're, we're talking about Fleabag, the sensation that is Fleabag. I think mm. not too far to say. Yeah, it's one of those. It's one of those shows. It's obviously not that far behind us in terms of time. Um, we do. I do like to do these more modern ones in our history podcast. But it is one of those shows that uh, certainly hit a cultural nerve. And I'm always a bit wary about these things. Like you know, um, thinking of it in a similar time scale, everyone was talking about Game of Thrones. Everyone was watching Game of Thrones, but they weren't. Like the audience numbers for it were tiny compared to say. Coronation Street. And I think, again, you know, Fleabag was very culturally relevant at the time, but wasn't a massive smash, was it, ratings-wise? Well, it's impossible nowadays to compare something to your likes of a, like, what were Morecambe and Wise doing back in 1979? Yeah. You know, it's like, it, it, the, well, the was, landscape is totally different. Well, a better different. comparison be what were, the, what were the figures for, say, Mrs. Brown's Boys when this was on? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Let us not judge... <laughs> <laughs> on popularity. No, well, well, we never do, but I think I'm getting a little bit... Um, I have a bit of a chip on my shoulder about... I'm going to I hate saying this word, but you're all... your guardian Easters. <laughs> your liberal media uh, sanctifying some uh, some cultural product and, and imagining that everybody in the world is watching it. Well, Gareth, I think the important difference here is engagement, to use another zeitgeisty word. Mm-hmm. Because there's a difference between however god many people tune into Mrs. Brown's Boys and it just happens to them. And, you know, it just like that, oh, that's that, and move on. Yeah. And this, which is, it, it, it gets people talking. And, and it, it, it exists outside of it being a TV show. Sure. Uh, and, it, and it has obviously travelled to America, at the very least, which is where you make your real money. So that's what matters. <laughs> well, indeed. And I think we're going to talk... A- quite a lot about the phenomenon of Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And just just to sort of, the, the structure of how we're going to talk about this, we'll talk a little bit about Phoebe Waller-Bridge first, and then we're going mm-hmm. to look at, uh, you know, the way we usually do this is we pick one episode and we look at that in detail. But part of the problem with Fleabag is that it's not very episodic. It's like chapters mm. of a book rather than uh, separate stories. We'll talk about that in a bit, yeah. So what we're going to do, we're going to pick, we have picked series one, episode six. So it's the last episode of the first series. The episodes don't have titles officially, but this is the one with the sex exhibition. Mm-hmm. And we will go through the episode, but instead of going into detail on each scene, we'll use those as a jumping off point to talk about the series and the storylines that have got us to that point. Then probably at the end, we'll talk a little bit about series two as a bit of an extra. But before we get stuck deeply into the episode, why don't we talk about Phoebe Waller-Bridge, the auteur behind Fleabag? Give us a bit of background on her and how this came about, how we got here. Well, let me ask you, actually, Gareth, I was curious about this. What do you imagine that Phoebe Waller-Bridge's background is? <laughs> is she a submarine captain's daughter? <laughs> that, and, and just in case listeners didn't get that reference, that is the first of many times I'm going to talk about Miranda Hart today. So, yeah, she you're not a million miles off, you know, it's a, a similar upper kind middle of... Upper middle class. Upper middle class, like, go back a few generations and you're in proper proper landed gentry uh-huh. now you know but 20th century kind of age is, doesn't quite exist in the same way but still a bit posh and i find it interesting because i think it's less obvious here than it is in miranda do you i, I disagree but but we'll get to that go on uh, oh yeah i i know what you mean but yeah perhaps just <laughs> we we've had this issue before with uh, with many and many a performer 
of coming from the right family or yeah. not necessarily that, but being able to rub shoulders with the right people. And it's more important that it's about having, it's about having the freedom of self-determination. It's about having that freedom. And, you know, I can relate. I'm sort of in the middle here. I'm definitely a middle class guy. Whereas when you're growing up, you're not being told, look, you better get a trade. You can be an electrician or something because, you know, you need to be able to pay the rent. Mm -hmm. You get told you can be anything you want to be. Look at the world yes. and decide what you want to do. And that's the difference. I think it's a different attitude. Obviously, there is a financial element to that. Well, okay, let's get into <laughs> this. Well. When we when we watched Miranda, we talked about how she'd got this stupid joke shop that was rubbish, but it didn't matter. There yeah. was no jeopardy for her. And I think that's yeah. the same here. So this character has this ridiculous guinea pig cafe. And what's the worst that could happen? She goes bankrupt and her dad will bail her out. There's no consequences. Now, we're talking about the character here. So what's Phoebe Waller-Bridge's background? Yes, because... Just to be clear, Fleabag is not autobiographical. Phoebe Waller-Bridge has been clear about that, yeah. although it's obviously saying a lot from her perspective. Yeah, so the background, as we say, it's a little bit, it's a bit upper class, a bit posh. Had a good education, all that. But ended up going to RADA, basically. You know, which is a good drama school. And so from a quite a young age, was stuck in there and was, was being a creative. And I think... Yeah. What I've seen from looking at her background and her career and all that sort of stuff, and again, let's just use the obvious Miranda Hart comparison. Mm. Miranda Hart became an overnight sensation after 10 years of hard work building yeah. up a reputation. It's yeah. exactly the same here, really, yeah. And it seems like she's always been uh, creative uh, and a writer and all that sort of stuff, as opposed to just an actor, although has always been an actor as well. Mm -hmm. So quite early on, she teamed up with a woman called Vicky Jones and they created a, a production company called Dry Right Theatre. And so they've been producing theatre for okay. 15 years, whatever it is now. That means she's been involved in that theatre world. Uh, and in, yeah. in back then, a, a sort of a relatively small scale theatre world creating fringe theatre, creating interesting, provocative theatre in many ways, mm -hmm. but just working and creating and meeting people. And that means if you're any good, you're impressing people, right? And Fleabag is born of that, the show. Yeah. Fleabag, the TV show, was came from a one-woman show that Phoebe Waller-Bridge performed yep. for quite a few years in fringe festivals, specifically. Edinburgh Fringe, first time she did it was 2013. But that came from a project where it was like, oh, hey, we're getting all these people to do 10-minute bits. Write something. Write a 10-minute, like, one-person no. bit and do it, yeah. And she said that what she set out to do, she just thought, right, I'm going to just do things that I know will make my friend laugh. So Vicky Jones, who was a creative yeah. partner and a, and a very good friend, I'll do things that I know will make my best friend laugh, and hopefully that'll work. And so that's what she did. And... Everyone said, like, you should turn this into a proper one-woman, like, hour-long show. You should go and do it. And she did uh, actually follow through, and, and, it, and it became a big hit. You know, a, big, a key part of Fleabag is that she breaks the fourth wall. She talks to us, engages us with her world. So mm. was the stage show just that? Was it her just talking to us? Yes, yes. And it's interesting to see how it translates to the screen, because in the one-person show, she's just talking to the audience the whole time and then occasionally yeah. acts bits out and does voices. Whereas in the show, it's all acted out and she occasionally turns to the audience. And for whatever, we'll talk about the fourth wall breaking a bit later, but you, we, you know, we yeah. get that connection. And it's, and it's actually quite a different tone, I think, to the stage show. It's, it's, I think it's a really interesting way that it's developed. Yeah, we'll talk about the stage show later, but let's get back to her. What, tell me a little bit more about what she'd done before this. 
lots of theatre, arguably more theatre than TV, but small-scale stuff for the most part. Mm-hmm. And when you start looking at those roles, it's really interesting. So she did, uh, actually, an early film role, she's in The Iron Lady, uh, the Margaret Thatcher thing, okay. in which she she's a, a relatively small part in that, but Olivia Coleman's in that. She plays oh, Carol Thatcher. Yeah. And they then worked in theatre together. So this part, as we're going to see later, was written for Olivia Coleman. It was someone oh, she I knew. See. She'd appeared in theatre with Andrew Scott around 2010. Okay. She wrote the role of the priest for him. Yeah. And basically all of that, all the cast here, I've for many of them, I've found connections to her in some previous work. Uh, see, you see, again, I, I can feel myself getting chippy. I'm like, oh, very chummy. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? This is a really good production starring fabulous actors. Why am I getting so chippy about it? Well, I think it's because there's such a history of nepotism in in the industry that you're thinking, oh, yeah, get your mates in. But it's not her mates. It's people she's worked with before. I'm going, wow, they're really good to work with. I want to work with them again. I I would like to acknowledge that the the fault is all me here. Yeah, yeah. But there is is a difference between that and say, you know, I'm going to use an example from my sort of, my film uh, knowledge. Kevin Smith just putting his mates and everything. (laughs) You know, and manages to make it work. Well, I like Kevin Smith, but whatever. Yeah. Um, this this is very much an example of them just finding amazing people to work with, and then them wanting to work with you as well because you're really sure. good as well. I mean, Andrew Scott and Olivia Coleman. You can't really you can't really argue and say, oh well, they should have put that out to open audition. I mean, they were brilliant actors. <laughs> Uh, and then just, uh, we'll come on to this later as well, but Sean Clifford, who plays the sister, mm-hmm. they were at drama school together and have known each ah, other for years. Okay. So we'll come back to that when we get, yeah. when we talk about her. That well, is I'm interesting because as, as I alluded to that, you know, the, the supporting cast are stellar actors. And Sean Clifford, whilst she is excellent, is not in that same sort of category. She's of, not, she's not a name, name is she? Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, we'll come back to that. We'll come back to her. So that's what she's doing. She's doing the odd television appearance, uh, and, uh, but getting bigger and bigger. She, she did, she was a regular, in a TV show called The Cafe. I don't know if you... Uh, I don't remember that, no. ...aware of that. I didn't know about this until I was doing this research. It was a Ralph Little sitcom. Okay. Um, he, which he co-wrote, I think, but also stars in. Craig Cash is one of the producers, and it, uh, it does have that to, kind of... I seem of, to remember that happening. And certainly it has a little it. bit of an early doors feel about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting, though. Phoebe Waller-Bridge in it, she plays like a ditzy hairdresser. She's like the best friend of a character. Okay. Quite different to what you think of as Phoebe Waller-Bridge, but she's an actor, right? <laughs> but because my knowledge of her is primarily from Fleabag, it's like, oh, yeah, look, that's totally different. OMG, Mrs. Dobson just told me the best fact in the world. The blue whale has a willy that's 12 foot long and dispenses of one ton of sperm. Imagine that thing racing towards you in bed. Oh, that make your eyes water. No pain, no gain, Carol. She had some regular appearances in Broadchurch. Oh, that's interesting, because I saw Broadchurch. I love Broadchurch with Olivia Coleman. Um, yep. I don't remember her in it, but... I obviously watched it before Fleabag. And then in 2016, just a few months before Fleabag came out, she was the creator and one of the main actors in a show called Crashing on Channel 4, a sitcom. Okay. Ever heard of that? No, I don't think so. No, I hadn't either. (laughs) But, you know, I'm not very good with the more modern stuff. But I I had a look at it, and it's about these six young people in their 20s, and they're living in a hospital because it's one of those property guardian things. So it's an empty building, so they're looking after it for cheap rent. So basically, it's a way of, look, hey, look, London, young people living together and having to deal with that kind of bullshit. I haven't watched a lot of it, so I can't judge too harshly, but I watched a little bit just to get a vibe. And you can tell it's got Phoebe Waller-Bridge's writing there. There's definitely that feel. It's a little bit, oh, young people 
being hipster wankers together. It doesn't grab you in the same way. They're all just slightly annoying kind of hipster knobheads. So <laughs> maybe that's why I only did the one series. But I mean, look at that. She had her own series in which she wrote and starred, commissioned by Channel 4. Mm-hmm. The, the, yeah, oh, look, she's on the up, right? And then... Sure. And then and, and didn't get Fleabag off the back of that. It was they were happening. At the so same time. so yeah. Let's, so we got these two parallel tracks. She's a she's an actor who's uh, getting increasingly uh, high profile roles. Uh, but then she's also got this one person show. Mm-hmm. So how did we go from the one person show at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival to the National Theatre and then a sitcom by people coming to see it and go, wow, this is great and talking. But about I've it. been to the Edinburgh Festival and seen some really good stuff. But they didn't get to the National Theatre. That, that's the that's the leap I'm interested in. Well, you know, there's there's a difference between really good and and great, I suppose. But also, it's about being in the right place at the right time. It's about hitting yeah. that zeitgeist. Hey, look, this is a woman, a young woman, talking about what it's like being a young woman yeah. and talking about things that a lot of people won't talk about or we we haven't seen in the media, in the mainstream media. And it's it doesn't time, have a laugh track like this. Miranda, so it's cool. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, we, we've already drawn allusions to Miranda. You know, this is the Miranda for grown-ups. But I wonder how much that did play into it. Miranda was a huge success. Yeah. We we talked about this last series. How much of that when you're looking at, oh, look, this young woman doing a one-person show, how do we convert mm-hmm. that into a sitcom? Oh, and she's talking directly to the audience. How much of that is an influence in going, oh... Yeah. We know this can work. We kind of have, we know the ingredients here, but we're going to make it for adults instead of for kids. I presume Miranda isn't actually for kids, but you know no, what but I mean. I, yeah, I think you, there's a clear distinction in terms of the way it's pitched. Yeah. And I, I suspect that, you know, we wouldn't have Fleabag as it is today if it wasn't for Miranda, no? Yeah, I think that's probably fair. But, you know, there are so many comparisons to draw, but yeah, the subject matter, the tone is completely different. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, look. Let's. Uh, so we've arrived at this series. When when did the first series air? Uh, twenty sixteen, July to August twenty sixteen. Okay. So it's six episodes, and as I said, it's like it's six chapters of a book rather than six short stories. And you know, we see plot lines unfold as we go along. Can I pick you up straight away on that? Because look, this is not the first time we've dealt with this. But is it a sitcom? What is a sitcom? Yeah, what? How do we define a sitcom? Because, and I, I think the major difference here is that it's not episodic. Yeah, this, this is not an episodic show. It is a plot-driven narrative show. Mm. And if you're watching episode six, which we are, and you haven't seen episode one, then the ending doesn't make sense. Why is Hugh Dennis there, right? Yeah. So just, that's just a very specific example. But as we're going to go through this episode, we'll see. Basically, everything that happens in this episode is tying up something that's been set up before. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I watch this on, on BBC iPlayer, as, as our listeners can, and iPlayer refers to it as a comedy drama, not a, very self-consciously not a sitcom, which, yeah. I, I don't know, is that just... That just means it's a pretentious sitcom. <laughs> that's how I read <laughs> it. But... but you're right. Episode six as a standalone doesn't work. And that's why, you know, that's why we're not going to talk about it in quite the same way as usual. Yeah. And, and plot structure is that difference there. I think comedy drama is fine. There's certainly dramatic elements here, but I think it's comedy. Definitely. I think it's a, oh yeah. Uh, and, and we're following a primary character and we're seeing the situation she's getting herself into. I think that's okay for certainly some sort of sitcom hybrid, but it's structure wise. And more than that, you're saying this feels like chapters in a book. And I, uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. For me, this felt like a, a film, you know, an overarching structure with, with following thing. Mm-hmm. But it didn't even feel like a full film. This feels like the first act of a film. This feels like okay. we're taking the film to the point where your character is at her lowest ebb. Yes. And then the second part is her kind of coming back and yes. uh, overcoming all these problems. So here's an interesting question for you, which you may or may not know the answer. Did they have series two planned when they filmed series one? 
No, absolutely not. I thought not. And and series one is very much just what you get in the, in the live theater show. Yeah. Uh, as in the plot elements and the and the stories and all that. Obviously, yeah. it's bulked out a bit. Uh, series two is all new material. Yes. We'll co- we'll come back to that later. We'll deal yeah. with series two a bit later on because there are changes and we'll talk about that. So yeah, I think the, for me this feels like the first act of a film. We do get a sense of resolution, or at least we get a sense of narrative completion. But it doesn't feel like we've got character completion here. We feel like we've, we've taken our character, like I say, to to her low point to then come back up again. Now, now you're making me think about it. You're right. It, it feels like, uh, well, it feels like Empire Strikes Back, doesn't it? <laughs> you, know, you need the Return of the Jedi to kick in and uh, save the characters. <laughs> I think I think that's a reference that our listeners will appreciate. <laughs> so let, let's jump into the episode properly then. We, we open with a sex scene. Yeah, we open with a sex scene. She's having sex with, <laughs> rather splendidly, this character's name in the cast list is Arsehole Guy. <laughs> yeah, Pablo. I, I think we should probably <laughs> say at this point, uh, you know, there is going to be some sexual talk in this uh, episode. <laughs> probably should have said that earlier, but we can't really avoid it. Do you know that. what? I, I, I really feel about there's quite a lot of characters in this that are never named, and they're sort of giving these mm-hmm. names, and that's fine. But I do feel bad for that. As an actor myself, sometimes you do get a part where you're playing the husband or man or something like that. Yeah. And it's quite a major role, but they're just never named. Yeah. Now on my CV, this looks like I've like, got three lines. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I want it to dem. So sometimes you just put a fake name on it too. Yeah. So if you look at, because Arsehole Guy's got quite a lot of, uh, quite a lot yeah, of yeah. action over the series. But if you look on his uh, IMDB, it looks like he's just had one scene where he's shouting at someone. Yeah. He's being an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so let's, instead of talking about this scene specifically, let's talk about the very first scene of the very first episode, which is how viewers are introduced to the character of Fleabag, which is basically a a monologue to camera about anal sex while she is having anal sex. (laughs) It's it's a real statement of intent, isn't it? I think, yes, definitely it is. Like, we are opening the show with this. If you don't like this, get get out now. Yeah. Uh, I think that's definitely what it's about, yeah. And I want to talk about shock tactics, um, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's probably a bit strong. But I was reading some forums about this show i quite like reading the forums about stuff because especially in this case much more than anything we've done before i could go back to when it was coming out like week by week and people were talking about it and i thought i wonder what the vibe was at the time and that's so i found that really interesting to just to get a general view now bear in mind i'm on like a comedy forum a sitcomy forum most of the people there are white guys in their 50s right <laughs> so there's a certain kind of uh, thing and there wow. was definitely quite a lot of negativity towards it right which was then sort of overtaken by a lot of people going oh no i think it's brilliant i think it's amazing blah 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 uh-huh. but that kind of immediate response was like oh it's all about bloody periods and anal sex. I don't need that. Um, <laughs> and not to get too stereotyped about the the, the, the viewers and most of our listeners. But <laughs> yeah, get steady on, Alan. <laughs> but I think that's what Fleabag is fighting against and very yeah. deliberately and definitively yeah. fighting against. It is saying, look, yeah, look, this what you're used to, this isn't it. We're writing something from a women's. A woman is writing this from a woman's point of view. We're talking about things that women are affected by, and you need to deal with it. Yeah, and I think actually in this case, as speaking as a man, I I don't feel excluded from this. There's the occasional joke, and there's the occasional kind of relationship that I I feel like I don't really get that. I get it. I don't relate. I don't. I can't relate to it, and that's fine. You know. 
you feel like that about lots of things. Mm-hmm. But it's a refreshing point of view. The most interesting thing for me, uh, and perhaps we can get into this with Arsehole Guy as, a, as an example, is the mm. representation of men. Yes. Now, I'm not saying that, this, that men are poorly represented or anything particularly, but it definitely feels like these male characters are written by a woman. Okay. My take is that it feels like the men... The male characters are definitely there in service of the female lead characters. Mm-hmm. But that's okay, because our lead characters are female. And so the supporting mm-hmm. characters are there to support. I, I don't, I didn't really feel that was a sort of deliberately upturning the gender roles. You know, it's just the focus is on the lead character and her sister. No, I don't think she's doing it on purpose. I just think the character, yeah, I think, guess what you're saying? The characters have been written as, okay, what kind of element of masculine, stereotypical masculinity yeah. will yeah. best serve this scene? As opposed to, I am writing a rounded character here. Yeah. As where, as opposed to, for example, the sister, I think is quite a rounded character. Uh, Olivia Coleman is a rounded character. Even the father, I think, actually is. A, although it's quite a, what well, is quite a simple character. He is, that is that feels like a sort of a nice mm. kind of rounded character. But I'm not a father, so perhaps if you if you were a father of a couple of girls in their twenties, you would look at that character and go, oh. It's not how I feel at all. That's that mm. feels a bit mm. simple. Well, what, might, now might be a good time to talk about. Um, it's not in this episode. It's in an early episode where Fleabag and Claire go to a, a retreat that a spa that their dads bought yes. them. And in an adjoining spa, there's like a men's rights group having a weekend away where they're they're just <laughs> they seem to be just screaming at a female mannequin. <laughs> I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what the curriculum involves there. It's quite funny. <laughs> I mean, that was probably the most explicit declaration of, look at these silly men. Yeah, yeah. But isn't it interesting that that episode, it feels like it's one of the best episodes of the series. And it is also one that it feels episodic. Obviously, there's things that it's, are carrying It's more on. standalone, yeah. But you could easily see a sitcom being written here of, oh, what's Fleabag up to this week? Oh, she's gone to a retreat. Yeah. Oh, she's, she's gone to, on a speed dating night. And let's see what happens yeah. and hijinks ensue. Let me ask you this then. So when she wrote that episode, what do you think she was trying to say? Was she trying to say anything or am I trying to read too much into it? What I found really interesting about the episode is that this retreat has divided people into women and men. Yeah. And all the time, Fleabag is kind of going, what's going on there with those men? I'm interested. I want to go over there. She was more interested in seeing what they were doing than being with the kind of the bullshit that was ascribed to her. As in, look, this is your uh-huh. woman bullshit. This is your man bullshit. And I think yeah. if any, I don't, I don't know how conscious that is, but I think if anything, it's about kind of crossing the genders and kind of go, well, why am I being segregated here? I'm more interested in that over there. Yeah. The only thing keeping her there is her relationship with her sister, not the, not the other stuff. And interesting that, you know, the, what the women were being asked to do was kind of menial labor and stop talking. Yes. And what the men were doing was expressing anger. <laughs> we paid 600 quid, quid to clean their fucking floor. I think that was the line. <laughs> exactly. You know, that whole thing is just mocking those sort of fairly silly Yeah, like I say, I, I, I will recognise that I may be trying to read too much into it. Well, I, 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 I'm not sure you do. Phoebe Waller-Bridge, from everything I've seen of her being interviewed, like she really takes this stuff seriously. This is not just stuff she's knocked out for a laugh. It's She's trying to say something. She's definitely saying something. Yeah. Um, I think it's always possible to read too deeply into it. But she's thought about what she's saying and why she's saying it. And why I think that's why this stuff yeah. all works so well. And on a similar level to that retreat and kind of making fun of that, I think the sex exhibition that we get in this mm. show 
Yeah. Where it's Olivia Coleman's character, the sort of evil, the wicked stepmother. Mm. She's she's putting she's an artist and she's putting on a sex exhibition. And it feels like this whole thing is a, a knowing little jab at that as well. And I, I am very much here for taking the Mickey out of modern art. We'll get to that when we get to this exhibition, all right? Okay. Yeah, go on. <laughs> so so we we were we were in bed with Fleabag and our soul guy. And yeah. you know, this these two characters and the way they interact is interesting. She's like more interested in talking to us. She's completely unengaged. He's completely full of himself. He's such a narcissist. There's a great scene, like, basically Olivia Colman, when she meets him, is just stunned and just openly says, what's it like being so attractive? Does it not distract him? <laughs> uh, so, you know, he's, he's, he's a narcissist. He knows he's good looking. And I think from her point of view, from Fleabag's point of view, he's just an accessory. You know, she sort of uses him as a weapon against Olivia Colman. Yeah, she she has him around because he's so handsome and she wants yeah. people to go, oh, you've got a handsome man. <laughs> and it's interesting, this sex scene, that she is so totally unengaged. But also, she's, they're having sex and she was like, oh, must stay attractive, stay attractive. Yeah, like, yeah. She's trying to keep it together. Yeah. And it means she can't actually enjoy it. And I think... She can't lose herself. In the Yeah, exactly. In the first series, that's what it's all about. All her sexual encounters are about power, are about feeling like someone wants to have sex with you. It's about yeah. getting someone to have sex with you because that's a sense of achievement. That's kind of how we find yeah. a, a, a validation. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people can identify with that. It perhaps is uh, more identifiable for women uh, for all mm. sorts of cultural reasons. But that's the beauty of the of the show, that exploring that dynamic and showing that she's not enjoying it and she can't enjoy it. And what we see later with this character... She's like, oh my God, he's falling in love with me. All oh, right, that's, yeah, that's yeah. that. And he hasn't actually, but he, he just jumped forward. The scene, he sort of confesses, look, I'm in love. And, and then the old switcheroo where he's like, and I'm going to go and tell the person I'm in love with. Yeah, it's not her. It's great. It's a beautiful little moment because she wants him to be in love with her so that she can be like, oh, well, I'm not really that bothered, to be honest. <laughs> not that she wants to reject him, but just so that she, she wants to, she wants she wants to have the power. Not, no, that's mm. not fair either. She's not that she wants power over him. But she wants the validation. There you go. She wants yeah. the validation. Yeah. And then when that's removed, she she feels bereft, even though she doesn't want him. And so it doesn't really hit her that hard. It's not like she's totally depressed, but it's a slap in the face. It's a real just yeah. smack. And it happens, uh, um, like, as we'll see, the, everything goes against her. And it's there's a very similar moment earlier on in the series where she's walking down the street and she's like, God damn, I'm looking great today. I don't know, yeah. the hair's just great. There's Everything's looking fine. And there's some bloke ogling her across the street and he's walking up to her and she's like, oh yeah, here he comes. He's going to say something. And then as he walks past, he goes, walk a shame. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and again, it's like, she doesn't care about this guy. In fact, she's kind of belittling him. It's like, oh, look at him looking at me in the street like I'm a piece of meat. How dare he? And then it's like undercut. Yes. Uh, and again, it's just a sort of life slaps you in the face. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about sex. <laughs> so <laughs> this is not like pretty explicit sexual scenes in, in Fleabag. I'm not a prude by any means, but here's, here's my cards on the table. I don't like sex scenes in drama in films in television it's like i know it's happening but do we really need to see this I feel like we don't see tom cruise on the toilet do we really need to see him having sex <laughs> again i'm not a prude it just feels needless and it sort of takes me out of the the, the drama mm -hmm. honestly i can't think of another example of this sort of explicit sex scene in a sitcom can you let's be fair straight up this is not very visually it's not explicit no there's no nudity but 
you know, I, I think the descriptive uh, element of it more than makes up for that. But that's the difference because it's not titillating. It's not like, oh, here's some tits. Is that what titillating means? <laughs> <laughs> it's the, the reason we need that explicit nature because it allows us into this very intimate world. Also, it's talking about things that people don't talk about. That's kind of the whole point. Yes, it it hasn't happened before because we, we're not allowed to talk about this stuff on time. TV. Yeah. And even if you think about things, I don't know, even something where you have, let's face it, traditionally male characters who are a bit more sex, sexually driven uh, or wants to have sex a lot, you won't see much of it. I'm thinking about jacking on the buses. Exactly, right? But generally speaking, let's take Stan from On the Buses for an example. You talk yeah. about people who want sex and can't get it. Stan is never gets his end away, but he's constantly trying to. Olive is trying to get her end away and her husband's not up for it, right? Yeah. So that's where comedy is, trying wanting it and not getting it. Yeah, yeah. This is different. It's it's about getting it and then going, why am I doing this? What, what, what's this about? And I frankly, uh, speaking as a young person... Uh, in 2016, you're not a person. <laughs> in, in, I'm I'm one year older than Phoebe Waller-Bridge, so oh, okay. I'm relating okay. to her. Fair <laughs> okay, uh, but as a young cosmopolitan person in London, I I think right, there's mate. a lot. Not too <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of that in modern dating, uh, where there's less. There's it's less about oh come on meet someone that you're going to spend the rest of your life with have some babies it's more about you just get out there have some dates have some fun have sex sex is okay to just have for its yeah. own purposes but then on the flip side of that and because this is a relatively new thing that we talk about in culture and society has not been explored that much the flip side of that is the afterwards when you go why am I doing this it's not even that enjoyable like what <laughs> what am I getting out of this yeah and that's what Fleabag's going through. That's the existential angst at the heart of Fleabag, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, well, if I'm having sex, that's great, right? Because that's what the young, cool people do. And, but yeah. then you're kind of like, uh, but then you've got to wake up with them the next day and you don't actually care about them. You were drunk. Yeah. And not having that emotional connection yes. matters. Well, actually, let's, let's skip on there to the next morning because that's the next scene. I, I don't really want to talk about that awkward interaction between them because we've kind of covered that but what's interesting in this scene and i think we should discuss is we now get our first flashback of this episode to her relationship with boo and the backstory here if our listeners haven't seen it is boo was her best friend her business partner that she opened the guinea pig cafe with and we know that boo is dead and we know that boo walked into the street and was killed in you know did she kill herself she was just trying to have a little accident so that her ex would take her back mm. this has been peppered throughout the series let's cover it all off now so we'll spoil it at the end of this episode we get the final reveal which is basically boo was in love with this bloke and fleabag slept with this bloke and broke boo's heart and boo effectively killed herself and that's the guilt at the heart of fleabag's life let's see if you see the same way i read it that boo never knew it was fleabag but she knew her boyfriend had cheated on her and that's what she was upset about oh that's interesting i didn't i didn't read that no i i, I got that she had but you're right that wasn't that was never explicitly said. i don't there think no it is I think, I think you might be right there yes the boyfriend says look i slept with someone i'm sorry and then she throws herself in front of a bike what about that there's a there's a scene later on where claire said where claire says what about after what you did to boo I think I think Fleabag has, a, has a confessed it to Claire. Yeah, fair enough. Oh, that's interesting. I'm not. I'm not sure that really changes her guilt either way, does it? Perhaps not her internal guilt. But it's. I mean, this is interesting. Like I said, you know, basically this is the toxic guilt within Fleabag, which is causing her turmoil. And it's not the only problem. She's got 
problems with her mother died and, you know, a relationship with her father and blah, 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 all those things. But the way that this these flashbacks are peppered throughout the series, and it's, it's the emotional climax of the series, demonstrates that Phoebe Waller-Bridge considered this to be the heart of the show. Yeah, early on, we get the reveal that her best friend killed herself. And we go, oh, wow, that, that's having an effect on her. This is having an effect. And then it's only now, at the very last episode of the series, that we discover that guilt that comes behind it as well. It sort of recontextualizes everything that's come before and the, the, the sort of general angst that she's going through. But I think there's a theme running through Fleabag, certainly series one, of loneliness. Mm-hmm. She's alone. Her, her mother has died a few years ago. Yeah. And her father doesn't know how to talk to her. Her best friend, who it's clear that she's, that's the only person she's really got this major connection with, has died as well. And her own guilt upon that is a separate issue, I think. Her sexual kind of relations are fleeting. The, the one sturdy kind of repeating relationship that she has with Harry that we see at the yeah. beginning has broken up. Yeah. In fact, in, in episode six, we'll see here. We'll see him shortly. Comes to a very definitive end as opposed yeah. to, oh, he'll come back, he'll come back, he'll come back. But even that relationship feels, again, power driven. She doesn't really want, she doesn't really yeah, want that relationship. It doesn't feel like she has a really great connection with him. And so we see her stumbling through this series, uh, through a, a series of lonely exchanges. And mm. like I say, when we, we bring her to her worst, lowest moment, it, it's all of that. Her sister rejects her. Her father rejects her for someone yeah. else. It's it's all down to that. She is alone. Yeah. There's a lot of hollowness to the relationships. You know, a lack of warmth. It's, all, it's very superficial. And where, in mm. the relationships where there was warmth, she seems to lose that or, or, or perhaps to destroy it. And, yep. you know, this is a point that we need to talk about with the character. She is a destructive force. Like there are, there are times where her antagonists, Claire's husband, uh, the wicked stepmother, you know, they, they'll, they'll say something along the lines of, Oh God, she's going to, you know, she's going to make a show of herself. She's going to take over the whole evening. And like, you know, we're supposed to not like them with good reason, but they're right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> she's this chaos. She's this chaotic force, this whirlwind of destruction. Yeah. I, I think that's why I relate to her. not that i am a chaotic force of destruction but this character speaks to you know the person i was back then as well and it's 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 almost this feeling of look at your sister she's married and she's got a great job why haven't you Mm. done that it's it's this comparison to what we expect of people and you're 30 years old and you're running a cafe into the ground for like you've got nothing what are you doing what's going on here yeah. Uh, and that's definitely the way I relate to her. And it's not that she's she's deliberately an agent of chaos. It's just that she's lost. She hasn't quite figured out what she's doing necessarily, or she doesn't care. She doesn't want to be defined by a job or by her mm. relationships. And then exploring as part of the show, and it feels like Phoebe Waller-Bridge is exploring this. Well, what do I want? What am I after? And just because society has said I should like this doesn't mean I have to, but it also doesn't mean I don't have to. Actually, maybe I do want to fall in love and have kids. And and that's the real dichotomy of it. I want to talk about quickly, are you aware of a, a podcast called The Guilty Feminist? Yes. I mean, this is in, in a very literal way. It's kind of the birthplace of Fleabag, but I think it speaks to Fleabag in a, in a great way. So Deborah Francis White, who who runs this podcast called The Guilty Feminist. She was the person who was putting together a show of uh, 10-minute sketches of people doing it. 
And so she went to Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who was a friend, a kind of a fellow creative, and said, hey, yeah. do, a, do a thing. I'm getting loads of comedians to do little 10-minute bits about this. And Phoebe Waller-Bridge says, oh, I'm not a stand-up. And she said, it's, all, it's okay, you can sit down and do it. And so she was like, all right. So instead of doing a sort of stand-up comedy bit, she sort of did a little sort of sketch monologue thing. And so that was the, the origin of it in, in many ways, what we were talking about. But I think that that vibe, if you listen to the, the Guilty Feminist podcast, there's this, this thing they do where I'm a feminist, but... So yeah. It's like, oh, I'm a feminist, but I undid a button on my shirt to get quicker service at the bar. You know, it's like, yeah. it's that vibe. It's that feel of like, well, I want to I wanna be a strong feminist. I want to have something to say, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, you know, the world around us works in certain ways. And mm-hmm. sometimes I use that to my advantage or... And, and just exploring those ideas of like, well, what is it to be a feminist? What does that even mean? And, yeah. and all that. There's a great scene, there's, just to jump forward slightly, there's a scene in series two where, I won't get into the business of the scene, but basically Fleabag says, sometimes I wonder if I'd be such a feminist if I had bigger tits. Yeah. And that sums <laughs> it up for me. That sums up that attitude. It is, it's like, well, yeah, I am a feminist. I want to do this, et cetera, et cetera. But then I use my feminine wiles to have, get men to have sex with me or mm-hmm. whatever. It's like that, that's something that's running through the whole thing. And I think it's, that's what speaks to if you're a young person, a young woman, nowadays that's what you're dealing with it's it's yeah it's complicated isn't it Mm. life's complicated that's the that's the conclusion i suppose well just speaking of boo though um jenny rainsford plays her she's not a particularly hugely famous one little sitcom connection she was in the stage version of the windsors that they did uh, a couple of years ago she played princess beatrice which she didn't in the tv show but there you go What's interesting about Boo, though, is if you look, if you ever Google Vicky Jones, who is Phoebe Waller-Bridge's kind of theatre associate yes. and best friend who they run dry right theatre together, she looks just like Boo. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> and right, okay. It's so like, if you were going to cast an actor to play this person, <laughs> you would uh, pick Jenny Rainsford. And, and uh, I don't know, that's obviously not a coincidence. I wasn't, wonder how subconscious it was, but it, it cannot be a coincidence. Okay. Let's uh, let's move to the next scene, and we are now in the sex exhibition. Mm-hmm. So basically, the gist of the scene is that um, what's Olivia Coleman? What, does her character have a name, or is she just stepmother? No, no, she's not named like a lot of the characters. She's just what's, godmother. what's she on the cast? She's what godmother? Yeah, godmother, godmother. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna call her Olivia just for the purpose of this discussion, just because <laughs> it makes my life easier. <laughs> mm-hmm. So so yeah, the the theme of this this is Olivia's uh, exhibition. It's very much sex-related. It's basically the story of her sexual life in art. And, you know, she invited everyone to come to this sex exhibition. And when Fleabag arrives with Arsehole Guy, the, the switch is that she says, it's so good of you to do this, gives her a tray of glasses to, to be basically be a waitress for the night, and even puts mm. a sticker on her that says, I am happy to help. <laughs> and it's a total power move. It's, it's a nice microcosm of this relationship. Yeah. So essentially, the backstory is... Fleabag and Claire's mother has died and their dad is, you know, alone. And we see a flashback to the funeral at some point where uh, Olivia, the godmother, is moving in at the funeral and she mm. basically takes away their dad. You know, she, yeah. so it's it's a coercive relationship. It's not a pleasant relationship. It, it, you feel like he's got no freedom to do anything that he wants to do, particularly with reference to his daughters. But, but just more generally, he does as he's told. Yeah, and we never... I, in this episode, the last episode of Series 1, it really comes to a head, and mm. there's a lot of, like, the glances between mm. <laughs> Olivia Coleman and, and, and Fleabag. One of my most delicate pieces was stolen from my studio. But in a sense, it was a blessing. In fact, her brutal snatching made me think of all the women of the world who have been robbed of their freedom, 
of their happiness and in the saddest of cases of their bodies. So in many ways, I have to thank the thief for creating my most profound piece of work to date. A woman robbed. And she and she makes reference to the statue that Fleabag stole, that everyone knows she stole it, even though she yeah. hasn't admitted it, and et cetera, yeah. et cetera. It's a real power thing, and it's it, if anything, it gets yeah. a bit too on the nose <laughs> in this episode. But yeah. what I found interesting about the whole six exhibition concept was that it feels like just gently mocking the idea of like, Oh, look, I'm talking about sex. Ooh, look at me talking about sex. And you're all shocked, aren't you? <laughs> and just sort of mocking the idea. Uh-huh. And I, what I assume is a sort of knowing way of going, look, we've, ri- we've written a show about being really open about sex. Do you think Phoebe Waller-Bridge is trying to sort of inoculate herself against that criticism by saying, here, look, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is just a little bit like, eh, yeah, I'm doing it better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm doing it a more rounded way. I mean, you know, I, as I said earlier, I am, I have no time for pretentious art chat. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. I think, I think it's skewered quite well here. You know, yeah, Olivia yeah, Col- exactly. Olivia Coleman's absolutely brilliant in this role, but she is yes. awful. You know, she's so pretentious about this bullshit art. And she, you know, the, the, the coercive power that she has over the dad, the way she wields that against the daughters, it's, it's fearsome. It's, it's awful. The, yeah, the, the, the ultimate sort of pretension of that is where she says, she talks about the statue that's been stolen. And she goes, actually, this is my now, now my most profound piece. I call it stolen woman or stolen whatever it was. Yeah. And it's just an empty plinth. Yeah, and it's just like it's so pretentious, but actually, it's like, well, that is pretty good, though. <laughs> like, that is, actually, in that context, that uh, yeah, it works really nicely. Works. I mean, like, <laughs> so that's the most annoying thing about your pretentious modern art is when it works. <laughs> I did like um, the the one time where she falters. There's, uh, very, there's an exhibition on the wall, scene in this which is all the plastic. <laughs> she's basically plaster casts of the penises of all the men she slept with in her, her life. And they're just sort of looking at these and pretending to appreciate it as art. And she comes over, and again, a total power move on Fleabag. She says, have you spotted your father yet? And, and Fleabag picks the right one and completely freaks her out, which is really funny. <laughs> it's the only time that, that the stepmother's on the back foot. It's really excellent. They're so well acted, just the moments, the timing between the two of them. It's beautiful. Really good, that. Well, having talked about the relationship and the character, let us wax lyrical about Olivia Coleman because I absolutely yeah. love Olivia Coleman. I've never seen yeah. her be bad in anything. I, I would say, and, you know, people like different things, but for me, her, she's my new Emma Thompson. She can't do anything <laughs> wrong. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. It, it, Olivia Coleman's an interesting one because she came up through the comedy route as yeah, opposed I mean, we to have an this, actor. We have this sort of, uh, on social media, I have this kind of pretense where I pretend sitcoms are the only things I watch. So Olivia Coleman, of course, the star of, of Peep Show. And, you know, apparently she's been in some films. But, you know, that is a little bit of a pretense. And obviously I've seen her acting in serious stuff. But yes, she did start like with Mitchell and Webb, didn't she? Yeah, she she went to Cambridge for only for about six months and she dropped out. But that was enough that she connected with some of that Cambridge mm. footlights lot, including Mitchell and Webb, and came up with them. Her first TV appearances, her earliest TV appearances were on Bruiser. Do you remember Bruiser? I've seen, I've seen some clips of it. It recently, was a sketch yeah. show. So it's Mitchell and Webb, and I think they wrote a lot of it. it basically, it was the it was an imprint for what became the Mitchell and Webb show. Yeah. You know, uh, Olivia Coleman's in it. Martin Freeman is in it pre Office, okay. uh, and a couple other people. So it's just this real kind of hotbed of t- 
talent at the time. And the sketch show did whatever, but they all moved on. And she went with them, you know, she went to do the Mitchell and Webb stuff, ended up in Peep mm-hmm. Show, of course, which is probably one of her primary sitcom roles, certainly earlier. Like, yeah. Because we're saying all this, she's done so many sitcoms. I mean, so many guest roles in sitcoms, but how many yeah. where she's a sort of really predominant character? And certainly none where she's, say, the lead. She, she did Peep Show, she did Green Wing. Yes, I remember that. Rev? Yeah, yeah, she was... Uh... Tom, is, is it Tom Holland or Tom Hollander? I can never remember which one's which. She played <laughs> Holland, his wife. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 2012, uh, she was in as well okay, with uh, Hugh Bonneville. Then. And so all these sorts of things. But then, in amongst all this, is doing dramatic roles as well. Yeah. Like I said earlier, she was in The Iron Lady playing Carol Thatcher, for example. Mm. But I think the big turn on that was Broadchurch. Oh, really? Uh, am I, uh, do you think? Because it was such a big show and it was such yeah, a I, sort I, of a I, hit. Well, I I thought you were going to say Tyrannosaur, which is perhaps not quite as 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 big a hit, but that was yeah. a, an independent film where she plays Peter Mullen's wife, and who you know she's a victim of domestic abuse, and it's a an acting masterclass basically. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's probably you know if you watch Olivia Coleman's showreel, I think that's probably going to get a lot of prominence. But but you are probably right in that Broadchurch was seen by more people. I think that's what I'm thinking, yeah, because there's, there's definitely drama stuff before that, but I feel like Broadchurch was the one that, that again, like Fleabag, maybe not everyone watched it, but everyone mm. was talking about it, your, your Guardian, yeah. your Guardian uh, articles on it, right? Yeah, but so <laughs> it feels like that was a switch where it was like, oh, look, Olivia Coleman's like a, she can properly do dramatic acting. And then, uh, obviously, Oscar's coming out of her arse now. <laughs> <laughs> Has gone into films and all that. Hasn't got a lot of theatre on her CV, actually. Not as much as you think, because she wasn't like a legit actor who then came into comedy. She she was a sketch comedy actor who who got into acting, which is certainly an unusual way to do it. I suppose Uh, so. But one of the the theatre roles she did was Hay Fever, an old coward play, and and she was in that with Phoebe Waller-Bridge. So, you know, they'd worked together before. And she she has a reputation as being absolutely lovely, like everyone. I've never heard anyone say a bad thing about her. Mm. And that's why I think this role is unusual in that, you know, she is a complete bitch. It, it's it's <laughs> against type, isn't it? But she she does it so well. Well, I, th- I think it's important that it's not immediately obvious. She's not the wicked stepmother stereotype immediately. We uh-huh. kind of build to it. And it's just quite subtle and insidious. Like I say, I think in this episode, the culmination of series one does get a bit on the nose. It's, it is a very mm-hmm. kind of looking to her eyes and say, I'm winning, ha ha ha, kind of vibe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a masterclass as always. Well, that's all we've got time for this week, I'm afraid. But do come back next time where we will go further into Fleabag and we shall look at Series 2 and all the changes that came about and what happened to Phoebe Waller-Bridge afterwards. And we're also going to look at some of the other actors as well. So join us again for that. In the meantime, if you would like to talk to us or make suggestions for sitcoms or just general comments, we are on social media. We are at BritComPod on Twitter and Instagram. We are on Facebook. If you search for British Sitcom History Podcast, you'll find us on there. If you would like to see video versions of the podcasts with some little clips added in and things like that, you can find us on YouTube. We are British Sitcom History on there. And we do have some video-only content on there that doesn't go out on the podcast feed, so it's always worth having a look. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time.